I'm not suggesting you need to become an expert in Bitcoin so that you can sell it. You need to become an expert so that you can decide why you hate it. <laughs> because just simply dismissing it as beanie babies and tulip bulbs ain't gonna cut it. You look silly. You need to get the expertise so that you can decide what your position is and ought to be. That was Rick Edelman, founder of Edelman Financial Engines and the RIA Digital Assets Council, giving you a taste of what's to come on the second episode of Tech Stacks, the FinTech podcast for advisors. I'm Nicole Kasperson, FinTech reporter, co-hosting along with my colleague, Sean Alaka, deputy managing editor. We will be diving into the record highs Bitcoin has achieved in recent weeks and why it matters to you. First, a thank you to the support from State Street Alpha. Be sure to check out their website, statestreet.com. Volatile or not, it's hard to ignore that Bitcoin is gaining traction. The largest and oldest cryptocurrency rose again last week, topping 51,000 for the first time in its history. In the past year alone, Bitcoin experienced a five-fold surge. Advisors have historically shied away from the digital asset because of that very volatility. But demand from both retail and institutional investors is expected to propel the asset class to even further gains. For example, Citibank analysts say that Bitcoin could top 318,000 by the end of this year. If institutional investors allocate just 1% of their funds into Bitcoin, the currency could top an astronomically high 500,000, according to a report by ARK Investment Management. Those are sky-high projections, but for advisors, the Bitcoin rally is really a reminder that education is essential to giving sound advice to clients. Many in the profession will need to get up to speed on digital assets if they want to provide effective financial advice in the best interest of clients. While there was once an attitude among advisors that Bitcoin is a short-term fad or far too volatile, that sentiment is slowly shifting. It's about the entire ecospace of distributed ledger technology, more commonly known as the blockchain, and digital assets and digital currencies, of which there are 5,000 or more out there. Bitcoin, of course, is the dominant. It's the original one. It has about 90% of the market share. There's also Ethereum, which is the uh, widely considered the second most important digital asset because of smart contract technology that it creates. But there are stable coins and altcoins, tokens, central bank digital currencies. There's a wide array within this ecosphere that we use as a shorthand of referring to it as Bitcoin. Driving these lofty predictions for Bitcoin is simple supply and demand. Bitcoin has 21 million coins being manufactured. No more. It is released over a set schedule, which began in 2009, and Bitcoins are produced at a set rate which means the supply is fixed. If demand grows, then the price increases. So the question then becomes, will the demand grow? The key could be institutional investors. Bitcoin has gained serious interest from some of the largest players like BlackRock and Fidelity, and that only seems to be growing, according to Ria Butaria, Director of Research at Fidelity Digital Assets. The enthusiasm for institutional investors was not something she expected. I do think that for some institutions that maybe are more conservative and still thinking about whether Bitcoin should be or is an asset class, the growth in market size or market cap is also encouraging. So, you know, I do think that certain institutions might be waiting it to reach a certain level because before they think, okay, it's 
it's big enough for me to allocate to. The market is liquid enough for to absorb the size in which that I would like to allocate to really make a difference in my portfolio. Some of finance's largest firms are starting to come on board. BlackRock announced in January it's adding Bitcoin futures as an eligible investment into two funds, the first time the money manager is offering its clients exposure to cryptocurrency. Likewise, Bank of New York Mellon announced its entry into Bitcoin this month with the formation of a new digital asset unit meant to develop a secure infrastructure for transferring, safekeeping, and issuing digital assets. Interestingly, the price fluctuation may not necessarily be a sign of volatility. Instead, the rally could be a sign that the market has matured. In fact, this growing demand from institutional investors could propel Bitcoin further. But adoption from institutions is a slow process. So in 2020, we saw a significant shift in the macroeconomic environment in response to the pandemic that I think led to a lot of interest from institutional investors that hadn't really looked at or thought about what kind of role Bitcoin can play. And I think because Bitcoin is this scarce asset that, you know, the supply can't shift in response to increasing demand, it's inelastic. We're really seeing that demand display itself in price action. There are also similarities to other more established asset classes, like gold, for example. Gold is an eight to ten trillion dollar asset in terms of market size, and Bitcoin right now is roughly six to seven percent of that, according to reports. Bitcoin has also been compared to gold for being relatively safe store value and not correlated to the market. You can make the argument that Bitcoin has a lot of the properties that gold has. It of course doesn't have the historical data that cements its role as a store of value, but it's also superior in that it can be transported from one place to another using a hardware device. You can carry your wealth essentially on a hardware device and, and it can be transacted globally in a really seamless way. So when you think about the market size of Bitcoin today and compare it to other assets and use cases that it could capture share from, you know, I think that is one of the reasons that lead to some of these significant price targets. Bitcoin has also historically been more accessible for the retail investor. Most of the infrastructure that was built in the early days was built for retail investors. So you had crypto exchanges that did a really great job at facilitating trading between counterparties, but hadn't really solved the problem of third parties securing custody. So over the last couple of years, firms like Fidelity Digital Assets have emerged and really addressed the challenge of holding these digital instruments in a secure custody environment. And they, in turn, help institutional investors store their assets in a safe way that is compliant with whatever operational or regulatory limitations that they may have. Given that Bitcoin and crypto started as a retail phenomenon, a lot of these fintech companies who are going after maybe millennials and Gen Z investors realize that they could attract more users to their platform by offering access to these digital assets while also establishing a new source of revenue for themselves, given that this is a really young industry and being early to the game can help them establish a first mover advantage. But I think as Bitcoin becomes more mainstream, as we're seeing it kind of happen right now, 
providing access to it will be table stakes for both fintech and incumbent companies to be competitive for this demographic and generation of investors. Younger generations are important for Bitcoin adoption because the demographic will inherit $68 trillion in wealth, the greatest generational wealth transfer over the coming years. With that much wealth set to transfer into the hands of young investors, fintech companies have rolled out support for Bitcoin, including Square, Robinhood, SoFi, and most recently, PayPal. With both a large demand from the retail and institutional side, it's important for advisors to think ahead about the potential growth of Bitcoin. For example, independent RIAs control about $5 trillion in investor assets. If RIAs allocated just 1% of that $5 trillion to Bitcoin, it would have an incredible impact on the demand for Bitcoin, causing the price to rise. Let's put it this way. Here's a little fun little statistic. There are 47 million millionaires in the world. If every one of them wanted to buy just one Bitcoin, they can't because there's only 21 million out there. And it's going to take another 120 years to get to that number itself. So the supply-demand conversation, if you ignore all the other elements of the opportunities and advantages of this technology, that alone suggests the price is going to rise dramatically, which is why Citibank, ARK Investments, Guggenheim, and many others are all arguing this is here to stay and likely will be significantly higher in the future than it is today. The increase in demand also is a result of more investors understanding the technology itself that makes Bitcoin such an innovative asset. To understand that, advisors are looking back to 2009, when the shadowy figure Satoshi Nakamoto invented the digital currency. Not much is known about who Satoshi is, not even whether he or she is a single person or a group of people. What is known, however, is that Satoshi wanted to invent a monetary currency that was not bound or controlled by a single government or institution. That's why it's a fixed number of 21 million. With the government, they print more money, devaluing the currency, creating inflation. And Satoshi said, we got to put a stop to that. Let's do it digitally without a fiat support and a fixed number. And okay, that premise is interesting. But what folks in the beginning didn't really pay attention to was the technology that Satoshi had to invent to allow Bitcoin to work. And that technology, now known as the blockchain, more formally distributed ledger technology, is what is now getting everybody truly excited. And that's why you're seeing massive investments of billions of dollars a year by not only leading technology companies, but every major bank in the world and every central bank among 110 governments around the country, all engaging in this because the technology is so amazing. This is going to revolutionize commerce on a global scale. The underlying blockchain technology is revolutionary because of how it acts as a ledger for data that can be shared and centralized for everyone in the world to see. Imagine a collective Excel spreadsheet where everyone can see in real time the data that is being put into each cell. Once the data is set, no one can change, alter, or delete it. That makes it immutable. And that's why it may revolutionize business dealings from retail banking to real estate investments, according to blockchain CEO Dan Erie. I'm just going to put it in perspective in terms of the internet, right? Because we're seeing it's comparable in ways. So a word that I'm going to demystify a little bit for advisors that you probably don't hear often in the financial industry is protocol. And the internet was really the first protocol that 
things were built on top of. And you didn't have a way at the time to invest directly in the internet. The protocol itself was just this layer. And then there were all kinds of applications that were built on top of it. You think of like a Google or an Amazon or Facebook or all those, you could invest in the companies themselves. That's where the value was accruing. So you had to wait for a company to go public and then you could purchase the stock like anybody else. And that's how you created value for your clients. Well, this time around with Web 3.0 and blockchain, really what you're doing is investing directly in the protocol itself. So if you can think of someone said to you, you can buy a piece of the internet and all the value that it's going to create moving forward, that would be a no-brainer. That's what's happening right now. State Street helps create better outcomes for the world's investors and the people they serve. Innovation, connectivity, and digital choice are the future at State Street. With State Street Alpha, their front-to-back platform leading the way. Institutional investors and wealth managers are challenged by fragmented market liquidity, cost pressures, and increasing regulatory oversight. Legacy technology, siloed systems, and a reliance on manual processes reduce productivity and distract your teams from managing investments. This can increase the potential for missed opportunities, subpar returns, and dissatisfied investors. Until now, Stacery Alpha provides a single platform across your front, middle, and back office, combining technology and services with advanced data aggregation and analytics so you can manage all of your investments on a single platform. Alpha is cloud-enabled and leverages a unified data foundation, allowing your investment teams to work from a single source of truth. And Alpha integrates with your internal and third-party data analytics, applications, and liquidity venues to support your investment process. Check out how State Street Alpha can help you address legacy systems, fix fragmented workflows, and increase productivity on statestreet.com. There aren't a ton of educational resources out there for advisors, which is why you have to do the legwork and research for it. Today, the only real place advisors are currently able to learn is from the product vendors that are manufacturing the funds and providing the services for Bitcoin. And of course, people regard that as tainted because it's a vendor selling a product. Meanwhile, the regulatory atmosphere around Bitcoin and blockchain is still very murky. It can feel a little hostile. At this point, the Securities and Exchange Commission has been active alongside state regulators around the country to express concern over Bitcoin, which explains why there is no Bitcoin ETF in the United States yet. The SEC has raised several concerns over the last decade, and at the moment, they've reduced their objections to two primary issues, custody and price transparency and legitimacy. The SEC has also been very careful to ensure that allowing Bitcoin to come into the marketplace as a security will not disrupt the markets or the consumer confidence that is essential to make capitalism work. There is some hope that President Joe Biden's pick to lead the SEC, Gary Gensler, could mean more regulatory clarity around digital assets. SEC Commissioner candidate Gary Gensler, he was a professor in MIT and he taught a course on Bitcoin and digital assets. So he has a really good understanding of the asset class and its risks as well as its potential and demand from different types of investors. And then with the CFTC, I think the chairman, Chris Brummer, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote a book on digital assets. So Just having officials 
in these agencies that have a really strong grasp of the underlying asset class is, I think, really positive for the future of different products, institutional adoption, and helping anyone who's waiting on the sidelines to get more clarity, to get more comfortable with the space. Bitcoin's price concerns from regulators means it might take a while before advisors see a Bitcoin ETF. This one is a little more challenging because Bitcoin is not a domestic asset. In other words, IBM shares domicile on the New York Stock Exchange and covered by NYSE rules and SEC regulation. But Bitcoin is a global asset. It is not governed by any government or entity. There is no owner of Bitcoin the way there's an owner of IBM. And it trades 24-7. And pricing varies depending on where it is you're going to buy it. Just like a tube of toothpaste will have different prices with different retailers, Bitcoin will have a different price depending on where it is you're transacting, what time of day, and what part of the world. Well, that drives the SEC nuts because they want to know. You'll want to know that when you buy a share of IBM, the price is the price is the price, no matter where you get it, when you get it, or from whom you get it. That doesn't exist with Bitcoin in many cases right now, and the SEC doesn't like it because that doesn't bode well for consumer confidence. And the SEC is correct to have that concern. Again, we believe that there is now sufficient enough serious players from FTSE in New York to Bloomberg here in the U.S., and other organizations that are creating pricing structures to validate, verify, and provide consistency for what Bitcoin's price actually is at a given moment. And if you are dealing with a qualified custodian operating with these pricing services, we believe that we can deliver what it is the SEC says is necessary. So we are hopeful that eventually, we will see a Bitcoin ETF. I've been saying that we'll see one within 18 months, and I've been saying that for five years. So we'll see it eventually. Bitcoin is also a currency that can be associated with shady activity. Most recently, alt-right extremist group linked to the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th received a Bitcoin donation worth about 522000 a month before the siege, according to crypto tracing firm Chainalysis. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has expressed concern that the misuse of cryptocurrencies and virtual assets is a growing problem, too. She said, quote, I see the promise of new technologies, but also see the reality. Cryptocurrencies have been used to launder the profits of online drug traffickers. They've been a tool to finance terrorism. She's correct. Bitcoin has been used, continues to be used by drug cartels and terrorists. Let's face it, they're not using Visa and MasterCard to do what they do. So there's no question that Bitcoin, because it is in many cases an anonymous transaction and instantaneous, it allows the facilitation of the movement of money cross-border away from the purview of regulators and government law enforcement agencies. So yeah, she's right. Bitcoin definitely is used for nefarious purposes. And so is the US dollar. And so are diamonds. And so is gold. And so is oil. Nobody's talking about shutting down the U.S. dollar because it's used by criminals. And yet we have these silly conversations about Bitcoin. The regulatory scrutiny that Bitcoin and blockchain are facing is almost comparable to when the first automobile came about and car accidents happened. It's a natural byproduct of a new innovation that came to life. When this country issued the very first public security, 
1792 by Alexander Hamilton. They were war bonds issued by the federal government to replace the debt incurred by the colonies in fighting the Revolutionary War. That very first public security was a victim of insider trading. So we've had crime in the financial markets for as long as we've had financial markets. So that's not a reason to get rid of Bitcoin. It's a reason to make sure you're controlling it and regulating it and protecting investors as best you can from the negatives that do occur. And that was the point she was making, that because Bitcoin can be used for nefarious purposes, we need to make sure we are doing everything we can to minimize those incidents, capture the perpetrators, and prevent them from doing what they're doing. But that doesn't mean we're going to do away with Bitcoin or not allow it, because that would be like saying, sorry, car accidents mean cars are not allowed on the roads. Now, in the meantime, there are other products and services that are being built to allow more and more people to buy Bitcoin without having to wait for an ETF. Financial advisors can transact all of this through a TAMP, such as those offered by blockchain. You can even lend your Bitcoin through companies like BlockFi, where you can earn as much as 7% interest by lending your Bitcoin to others. So there is a wide infrastructure that is available right now, all of it under regulation by the state and federal level, and there for consumer protection. We're just not there yet with an ETF. And we're beginning to see some really cool stuff. Uh, For example, I mentioned blockchain and their TAMP Kingdom Trust, their product called Choice that allows advisors to do this for IRA accounts broadly, which includes a Bitcoin allocation if that's what the advisor wants to do, so that advisors can basically say, I really no longer need to wait for an ETF. I, you know, that's the simple, easy way, but the SEC has been dragging its feet on that. I'm not going to wait because while I'm waiting, Bitcoin's price had jumped from 3,000 in 2018 to 40,000. And I don't want to wait anymore because I don't want to miss out on what I perceive to be the opportunity for me and my clients. It does make sense for you to begin with education. Learn about this ecospace, develop the knowledge you need to understand whether or not it's appropriate for your clients. If so, to what extent and how much of the portfolio should you put into this asset class? The biggest risk is just education and having a strong understanding of what you're investing in. But I would say that that's a risk for users having other securities at their fingertips through these applications as well. But what's awesome is that there's, I think these applications do involve some element of education into their user interface so that users can spend the time understanding what they're allocating to. I also think that this industry is so great and there's such a vibrant community of people sharing content and research publicly. All our content and research is publicly available to anyone that's interested in learning more. With the proliferation of platforms like Twitter and the the conversation that's taking place there, it can definitely be difficult to kind of sift the signal from the noise, but For people that are really interested in learning more and understanding what exactly it is that they're investing in, I think this industry has an immense amount of resources available. I think the one thing that really surprised me was just how accessible Bitcoin is, especially to retail investors. And I know it started out on the retail side, but like I didn't know you could get it through PayPal and some of those other apps. 
that we mentioned earlier. I mean, they're really going for the next gen investor. And that's where a lot of the interest is on the retail side. So I didn't know exactly how easy it was that you could. I mean, you don't even have to go through traditional kind of brokerage. You go through like just apps that have millions of users, and now they're opening up the world of crypto. So it's really exciting. It is. It's really interesting. So one thing that stands out to me is thinking about over the weekend, just being at a bar with my friends. And this is the first time in my life that my peers, I'm a millennial guys, my peers actually are asking me questions about my work. Like they're like, oh, you're dropping a fintech podcast about Bitcoin. Like, what do you know? Like, what should I do? Should I be like, should I put money into it? Like they're, it's crazy that people, you know, in their early to late twenties are asking me questions. It's something I've never experienced before. And so that's still shocking to me even right now. But I mean, when Elon Musk tweets something, people listen. And so it's really just kind of spiraling, I think, at this point in a similar way that like almost any kind of trendy thing happens. But once the institutional investors get on board, then it kind of crosses over, I think, from like trendy to truly impactful to the industry almost, or almost like here to stay when the institutions get on board. Right. Yeah. It seems like it's become to a a point where it's really matured when a lot of the big money feels safe enough to, you know, because they're not making any dumb bets, let's face it, for the most part. There's a lot of research that goes on at that level. And if they've kind of come on board, that means they've pretty much vouched for the technology in a lot of ways. And I even see that stat where if it was 1% of institutional and what that would mean, for Bitcoin, it's just really eye-opening or you know shocking mm-hmm. to see what these numbers and to see the analysts saying five hundred thousand dollars for a single coin. I, you know, and a, a lot of the the kind of spiraling the energy around it, I think, is kind of a fear of missing out too. I mean, when you see these big-time Wall Street firm analysts coming out and saying crazy numbers like that, I mean, you really start to second guess if you should be into it, but. Again, it's still so volatile and still so risky for retail investors that it's education is really paramount right now for everybody. Right. I think it's interesting the way that apps like Robinhood and Cash App, like who in the world knew that you could even trade Bitcoin on Cash App? I mean, I actually really did not know that until uh, speaking with these sources and really doing a deeper dive into this. But what will be interesting, I think, to see is the way that the institutional investors maybe start to incorporate and just try to catch up with these fintech providers, Robinhood, Coinbase, all those people. I mean, it's I wonder what they'll do to try to kind of keep pace with them because people want to get in on Bitcoin. And it's because of the social media chatter and the pandemic fueled interest in finance from the younger generation. And people are like, I see tweets on Twitter, obviously, where people say, like, I need to know what's going on with Bitcoin now because I'm relying on this for finances. Like, it's getting to that point just because the pandemic is just so mad. So that's also, to me, a surprising fact of it that I never really would have known unless I we did this episode and, like, dived into it. But what do you think that advisors should take away from this whole episode? Well, I was going to say the the thing that really surprised me the most was that your peers are actually reading your work. 
Like, <laughs> I know. I know. If only I could get my mom to. My mom like glosses over with her eyes. She'll kill me if this is on the pod. <laughs> so <laughs> of course. You know. <laughs> when but you're yes. At a and people recognize you. You're doing that podcast on Bitcoin. I know that was. It was very cool. Like yeah, it was, and it's the first. Yeah, it's the first time that I've got like my. Usually I talk about my work and my friends all eyes usually gloss over a little as well. But things are changing. The takeaway, I think, for advisors is just education, right? I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but it seems like this is coming. Unless you think that some other kind of technology is going to take over blockchain technology, you know, people are saying the most important invention since the invention of the internet, you know, like it's, I think Rick had mentioned that it's like the top, one of the top four since the invention of fire that's going to change (laughs) capitalism. That's crazy. I mean, if you believe the only way that this seems that it can't work is that if something that technology doesn't take off as it's supposed to. So I I don't know. It's uh, the education is really the biggest factor I think here. For sure. And the regulatory kind of clarity, you know, the guardrails, I guess, need to come up or down or just any kind of clarity, you know, because it is confusing. You know, we, I think another thing that's surprising is that we wouldn't have known that, you know, Jeanette Yellen's comments maybe were taken a little bit too far by some mainstream media, because she also had said that, you know, it can be something that's innovative to help. And Rick's comments kind of debunking the myth, you know, and not necessarily a myth, but the idea of, oh, Bitcoin's the only currency that can do bad things. Like drug dealers do all of sorts of transactions with things <laughs> that aren't Bitcoin. You know, there's, di- like he said, diamonds and the US dollar and so, I mean, it's, it, that kind of seem, does seem, feel a little silly now, like looking back in that, at that conversation. So glad we got to kind of like debunk that thought process in a way. Sharon, it's only probably going to get more safe when you have the big institutions coming in, like Fidelity. It's going to be able to kind of safe, keep these assets safer than they were just on some, you know, website somewhere. So exactly. um, yeah, it's interesting times. Do you want to wrap this up, Sean? Sure. We put some resources and links to some show notes attached to this episode that advisors can check out. Also, Rhea recently conducted research through Fidelity Digital Assets called the 2020 Bitcoin Retrospective, which we are also linking in the show notes. It really gives you a completely thorough ins and outs of all things Bitcoin. So definitely check it out. We're also linking to Rick's Rhea deck website and blockchain so that you can retrieve all the information we talked about on this pod. I also wanted to take a moment to thank State Street Alpha once again. Thank you for the support and be sure to check them out at statestreet.com. Thanks again to the listeners for tuning into this episode. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and just about anywhere you can find podcasts. We're on it. Also, be sure to stay tuned for our next episode coming to you in March. We'll be talking about that new social media that's come out. Um, We're not just talking about Twitter, so you can kind of think up what we'll be discussing for that one. Teaser alert, but also wanted to say thanks again to our listeners and for our guests for joining us. I hope that you now have all the information you need to go out there, grow your business and your stack.